Ruth Roper Wild. Yes, I am Ruth Roper Wild. Thank you so much for coming back. This is so exciting. One of the friends of the show, one of the most exciting paranormal researchers we know in the UK. Um, I'm so excited. Lockdown has been horrible for doing ghost hunts and talking to people who are doing ghost hunts and all of that. But um, if you haven't listened to a previous episode, uh, you will probably not know, but... We will explain it all at the end and we'll put it all in the show notes. But Ruth is a massively prolific and really detailed uh, paranormal investigator with some of the most fascinating books on the topic that you will ever have come across. And it's just so lovely to have you back. Thank you so much. Hello again. Hello, guys. It's so nice to be back. It's always good to come and talk to people that you really enjoy having these in-depth conversations with. Oh, it's oh. lovely to have you back. It's brilliant. It really, it really is. So, for somebody that writes the sort of books you do, where you have to really get out there and assess the evidence, how has it been? Has it been possible to do this, or have you, have you only just got back into it? Well, it's quite interesting, really, because although I do a lot of ghost hunts myself, as you say, I go out there and you know try and find the pesky little spooky things myself. Um, I do an awful lot of my work uh, by interviewing witnesses. So a lot of my work is going out on social media and talking to the people because I'm looking for the correlations, having found, uh, you know, a spooky happening, a ghost or whatever. What fascinates me always is trying to find the correlations for that. So finding somebody else who's had an experience in the same location. And even better, if I can find somebody who's had, you know, seen the same thing or a, a, a reasonable version of the same thing. Um, a lot of that is done by going out, like I say, on social media. So as far as lockdown went, that was in some ways that made it slightly easy because everybody else was stuck at home as well and quite happy to talk to me on social media. But it did mean as far as going out on ghost hunts, uh, of course, like everybody else, I was completely stimmied. Um, and I had to keep remembering on things like my Twitter feed and so on, not to make comments like, oh, so if you happen to be in the area, go and take a picture of this ghost for me. Because I had to remember that people weren't allowed to go out and take the pictures of the ghost for me. So, yeah, it's it's been a strange period for everybody. It really has. Um, one question I had about that, with people being in lockdown, because I know you keep a database of people giving you paranormal stories and you map out the locations and stuff. Was paranormal activity down or up during lockdown? Or was it about the same? Do you know, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I'm not sure I've actually thought that one through as to whether I've noticed any difference I did get a lot more engagement from people during lockdown now whether that and to be honest I had assumed that was simply because they were bored and stuck at home um you know with not much else to do so talking to me was something they were willing to do but whether it meant that some people were experiencing more that's an interesting question um I think the the truthful answer is that will be more likely to come out in this coming year because what I tend to find out is when I speak to people, they're like, oh, this happened to me a few months ago, not in real time necessarily. So people that have been experiencing things in 2021 will only just be getting around to telling me now. Um, in fact, I think of all my interviews, the most recent I ever had in the whole you know, five, six years I've been doing writing the books 
was I interviewed somebody on a, I think it was a Wednesday evening and they said, oh, it happened on Sunday. Um, and that was a few years ago, but mostly people are telling me about things that happened either the year before or the year before that. And, and quite often as far back as 20, 30, 40 years or whatever. So yeah, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it? I wonder if because people were at home more, people have sometimes thought my house is a bit odd, whether they've actually had time to notice, actually, my house is damn odd when you spend time in it all day, every day. And whether some of those stories will start to come out, that would be really fascinating. So when you were uh, at home and emailing people for their experiences, is there not a problem in uncovering those experiences? Or do you go back historically and then try to uh, sort of uh, find people who've had those experiences to sort of make that... Like, because because I think what's interesting about your books and your approach is you do it very scientifically. You're very cagey about what it is that you're researching, so that you don't give the story away, and then you get people in. So, do you do you sort of like hunt around to find things that you want to ratify, and then go out and find the people to ratify them? It's funny actually because it's kind of a self closing circle. This one. Um. So yes. Is the, the short answer is yes, I do that for part of the time. My databases now are just ridiculously huge. And so I will ha I will have found a source story, which might have been in a newspaper or a book I've read or whatever, online, wherever I might have found it. And I will go out and try and find other people that have experienced that. But in doing so, so say for the sake of argument, I write out in, um, I don't know, Leicester, and say, has anybody seen or does anybody know anything about the haunting on the high street? What I will get is a load of people will answer me about the haunting on the high street. So, you know, I'll get all sorts of versions of that and, and local myths about it and so on. And a couple of people perhaps who've experienced it. But I'll also get half a dozen people who'll say, well, no, not on the high street. But I saw something in the pub nearby or the shop nearby or my house that's four streets over or, you know, what, somewhere in that location or, or general locale. Um, so I add them to the database. <laughs> um, and then, of course, I trawl through my database. I go, oh, I haven't chased that one up. So then I start chasing that one up and go out on a different social media feed to see if I can find anybody who's seen one down that street or in that pub or in that castle or whatever it might be. Um, and you end up just going round and round in loops in a way, because when you then ask about that one, you get the same again. People answer and say, oh, no, I haven't seen anything there, but I've seen something somewhere else. So that gets added to the database and on and on it goes. And every time I think to myself, I'm going to run out of things to put in a book at this rate. I'm, I'm clearing the database here. It, I was looking at it just yesterday and it, because I'm currently writing a book about road ghosts again, I'm currently emptying my road ghost date database as it were but the other ghosts database is filling back up again rapidly um because of course people are answering with no i haven't seen a ghost along that road but i i, I can just see this happening until i'm too old to write anymore at this rate and when you you go out and and because uh, obviously i i follow you on social and i see your posts some of them are localized uh as as you say which is a just it's a really smart way of doing a paranormal investigation because of you've got all of the uh, the ability built into some of those social platforms. But when you go out and you sort of ask for something um, 
as you do, and quite rightly, that is kind of like a general ask out. When you start getting the responses in, and even if someone says, well, it wasn't here, but it was over here, do you still find yourself being surprised by the similarity of the uh, respondent to the original story? Sometimes, yes. So, for example, I've just written one up this week where I'd, I'd, I'd done exactly this. I'd started with a, a source story. I'd gone out, I'd asked for correlations, people had got back to me, and I'd done a bit of digging around and found some. And this is in a small, I'm not sure whether you'd call it a village or a town, but a small location anyway in, um, I'm wanting to say Leicestershire. I think it's Leicestershire. Hmm. Yeah, Leicestershire. Um, and it's a place called Siston. And it's spelled S-Y-S-T-O-N. And somebody had written in to me in response to another question about somewhere else and told me that a friend of theirs had been walking across a place called Mansell Fields in Siston. And they'd explained to me how to find where that is on the map. It was early in the evening and ahead of them, they briefly saw the figure of a man dressed in what they thought was a Victorian policeman outfit. And this figure was just there very briefly and then disappeared. Um, and of course, it had shaken their friend up quite badly. So I'd dug around a bit and gone out on social media and so on, just like I normally do. And I got somebody else tell me that, no, they didn't know anything. And bearing in mind, I haven't said what it is the person's seen. I've just said a haunting or paranormal experience on Mansell Field. And they said, well, no, not on there. But they'd heard that the Grand Union Canal at Siston um, was haunted by a man wearing a mid-length coat and a bowler hat. Now, as the crow flies, those two locations are less than a mile away apart, you know, so walking a very short distance if you're fit and able. And, of course, I'm sitting there and thinking, mm, a cape and a bowler hat? Is that just another way of describing a Victorian policeman's outfit if you weren't thinking in terms of Victorian policemen? Something well, that's interesting. It's to me that sounds like it could well be the same figure. And then somebody else wrote into me and gave me an account from when she used to work at a company um, on a little uh, industrial estate in Siston. And when you look it up on the map, this lies roughly halfway between these two locations. So, you know, on a straight line between them. And when working in this little industrial estate, which backed onto the canal, she used to catch out the corner of the eye the figure of a man in blue. And of course, that's why I'm thinking, well, this is really odd because to me, this sounds like it's the same figure that people are interpreting slightly differently, depending on what it reminded them of. You know, so one of them, obviously, the dress reminded them of. Um, a policeman's outfit and other ones thinking of cape and bowler hat and the other ones well she's working in industrial units she's thinking of you know sort of blue working clothing um but i think that might actually be the same figure that's that's walking a route so you you find yourself with these diff these sightings which are in like almost adjacent postcodes or you know very close to each other and then I don't know how your database works, but then do you drill a little 
further to find out whether there have been any interactions because sometimes it feels like some of these um, apparitions or entities are what I guess we've come to describe on the podcast as the stone tape theory, like um, a replay of something happened in the past or whether it's a consciousness. Did you... Uh, do, do you find people uh, I guess what I'm asking is is there a crossover do you find some people see the figure and some people interact with the figure or in this particular case did people just see something but never interact with it in this particular case they just it's they're reporting seeing but never interacting um, in answer to do I dig a little deeper as I write the entry up actually into the book when I decide which entries I'm going to actually put in the book I then do a google check at that point um, and I try and search whether there's anything online about a figure in that area any paranormal activity in that area and you can sometimes find that another investigation group has been out there um, and you can sometimes pick up bits and pieces you know from that they've gleaned or what have you um, and then in that case, I'll include a reference and, and direct people to look at that person's, you know, investigation group and so on. So they can make that link if they want to. Because in my head, I'm writing my books for other ghost hunters, I suppose. Um, so in my head, I'm always thinking, what information would I want to see if I was going to want to go out and try to find this ghost? So I'm trying to give them enough information to be able to to know when there's the best time or what they're looking for. And if I can do that by linking them to other people's work who might have had some sort of interaction with checking the paranormal out in that area, so much the better. Why should we all reinvent the wheel? Let's look at each other's work. And, you know, and if they've put it online, they want it to be looked at. So I direct the traffic to it. Um, so whether that's as thorough as you'd like it to be, if you had the time to sit and do a real deep dive into one geographical location, a hand on heart. No, of course it isn't. My books cover the whole of the UK. And frankly, I have to stop somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Yeah, my biggest problem, honestly, um, I mean, at the moment, book number six is, is in the offing, as you've gathered, and I'm halfway through writing it, and it's already sitting at 107,000 words. Um in just rough schematic and, and the half written. And it's already at 227 pages. Well, that's A4 sized pages, which is bigger than it prints out at. So it sounds crazy, but because, you know, for somebody wanting to read that, you're thinking, yeah, just put more in, Ruth, just put it all in. But the trouble is, the more I put in, the more that's going to cost to produce it. So whether I produce it as an ebook or a paperback, because I, I do both formats, it's still going to cost more. Um, and that then you have to start thinking, well, is somebody going to buy a book or want to pick it up if the initial cost is so high? So I have to try and keep it where it's a thick enough book to be interesting, but not so thick that the cost has gone out the window, you know, just gone mad. Um, so then I end up having to strip down to a sensible size and sort of pick the stories that are going to best fit in the book I'm currently writing. Um, and then some get relegated back into the database until next time round sort of thing. So how that's, that is a very interesting process. How do you go around that? Because obviously I guess, you know, to make something um, commercially viable, there's an element of um, 
titillation in the right sense. You know, you want those sort of juicy stories. But at the same time, you obviously want to, you know, keep the uh, the sober and uh, very uh, empirical approach that you have to it. How do you do that balance? That must be really hard. Do, do you know, honestly, the, the truthful answer to how do I do that balance is I'm just entirely selfish. <laughs> and, and it's the beauty of being an independent author. It's, it's why I chose this route of being an independent author. You'll never get rich being an independent author because you haven't got the backing of a big publication house. You haven't got the backing of the big marketing and all the rest of it. So you have to do all of this on your own. But to my mind, that was worth doing because I wanted to be able to write about what I wanted to write about and not be forced to write, if you like, the sexy ghost stories that's, you know, that would make the TV programmes or, or what have you um, by scaring people and, you know, getting into all sorts of wild speculations about demonic possession or something you know and going off on tangents or kind of trying to sex up what I was writing about to make it more interesting or something I want to be able to just write what people are actually seeing and actually experiencing so when it comes to narrowing down what I'm going to put in the books I leave in what's really interested me is is the simple answer you know, and if that's a really simple tale, then it stays in if it piqued my interest. Um, if it's a more convoluted tale where I found find loads of correlations, it's almost certainly going to make it in because it is really interesting because I found so many correlations. Um, some get left in because I feel sorry for the county that I'm writing for hasn't got many entries. So it gets a few, you know, smaller ones because oh, well, poor old Warwickshire or wherever, you know, it's not got many. I'll leave that one in, even though it's not that interesting. Um, because I do like to try and balance it out a, can a, a bit. You know, I, I get some quite funny reviews where, where they're great books, but you didn't write about where I live. <laughs> Sorry, can't write about everywhere. Um, so I do try to sort of even it out a bit. That's that's one of my criteria is try and keep it, you know, don't write everywhere about Bedfordshire just because that's where I happen to live. You know, try and even it out across the country. But then beyond that, it's really just my selfishness. If I found it interesting, it gets to stay in. If it's slightly less interesting, it goes back into the database. Um, and I'll come back round to trying to find more out about it. So I've got like several times things haven't made a cut for one book. But then later on, more people have written in. And it makes the cut for a second book because it's now become more interesting. Um, and it's quite interesting because I go out on social media of course, people might pick up one of my, as I call them, ghost posts. They might pick up one of my ghost posts two or three years after I wrote the ghost post and suddenly contact me. Um, and that can be quite funny in its own thing because they write to me thinking it's the only ghost post I've ever written. And they'll say, oh, you asked on social media about the ghost on the high street, you know, or the ghost on London roads, you know, like a really common street name. Um so I was going to tell you about my experience and I have to write back to them and say, what town are you talking about? Um, because, of course, I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these ghost posts out at any one time. And if it's a very common name, I can't pin down what town that might be. Um, so that's quite funny. And and you said, Ruth, that um, you felt sorry for some of those counties that didn't have much going on. I, that made me wonder if you were 
a ghost hunter, or I guess the other way round, if you wanted to avoid them, because there's so many of them, what county would you go for? Where is the hotspots? Well, it's, you know, that's really interesting. The, the, the places I really struggle to get answers from are Scotland, Wales and London. Um, and a little bit of Warwickshire sometimes. Because, and I don't know, I, I've never yet worked out whether this is, whether the paranormal is either less noticed in those areas or less part of daily consciousness so people just aren't interested in it or whether social media is used differently in those areas and therefore my ghost posts aren't getting noticed are you are you saying ruth there's a there's a a paranormal metropolitan elite at work in (laughs) london (laughs) yeah (laughs) but then somewhere like i mean hampshire um and uh well quite a lot of the southern counties they will really engage with me about, you know, if I, if I put a ghost post out, I'm bound to get a lot of answers normally. Um, people seem to be more willing to be chatty in social media. Uh, and again, whether that's a, a, a cultural thing about how social media is used in different areas, perhaps, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so anybody in London, Wales or Scotland, who'd like to write to me about your ghost experiences, please do. Well, I was wondering about Scotland and Wales because um, I've got a lot of family connections in those places. And one of the things that I have noticed is that, and I would say this probably applies more to Scotland, there is, um, I would say, a more, uh, a deeper acceptance of the paranormal in some of those places. Um like I've got relatives who who live in Scotland, and if you, if you said to them that you'd seen something, you you know you'd seen an apparition outside the church or something, they probably wouldn't even turn a hair. They'd just go, "Yep, yeah, that's that's how it works." I'm not sure that applies to London, but I wonder whether those. It's almost when you start targeting Scotland, um, particularly in those rural communities. I wonder whether because of the way that people think it's a bit like putting a post out saying have you ever eaten an egg it's kind of like well of course of course these things happen i wonder whether it's that do you know i have sometimes wondered that that exact thing whether whether the tone of the post if you like is landing like has anybody seen a carrot this week and 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 the answer is well of course we've seen a flipping carrot what why are you asking that you silly woman and so they're not bothering to answer because it's it, to them it's such a stupid question because it's so obvious that you would have seen, you know. Um, whereas in other areas, you know, there's a greater interest because there isn't such a deep um, interest or, or living alongside the paranormal. Mm. I always get the impression with London, and, and this might just be my false impression, but I always get the impression it's because people don't use social media in that way to chat and talk. Um, because it's too busy, it's a big metropolis, it hasn't got small communities in common that want to chat to each other. So any online thing I put on on any sort of social media just kind of gets lost in the noise um, of the daily hubbub of life, if you like. So I I sometimes think it's about that with London. And funny enough, with Wales, I sometimes think it's about a lot of their uh, 
supernatural, if you like, seems to be much more wrapped up in kind of Celtic myth and folklore that seems to be of more interest than modern day hauntings, if you like. And I sometimes wonder if that's kind of a cultural reference. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. There are definite pockets where I get better responses. And it would be really nice to think of a way to empirically decide, is that a bias in the way I'm doing it? Or is there actually a difference in the paranormal in different areas, you know? Yes. And with those responses that you get back, do you find that people say, look, I wouldn't tell anyone this, but I want to tell Oh, so many times. <laughs> Honest, I, if I could get rich on that comment alone, honestly, the number of people who write to me and say, you know, I've never told anybody this, or I hardly ever talk about this, or I haven't thought about this in the 20 years since it happened until I saw your post. Um, because they're afraid of being ridiculed is a lot of the time. Um, particularly if it's a, a, a bit of an older experience, you know, like 10, 20 years ago when the paranormal wasn't perhaps quite as popular as it is today. Um, but also, I think quite often, we modern humans are far too quick at just dismissing something if it doesn't fit into the daily run of our lives. You know, you, you're going through your daily business around the house and, I don't know, a fork suddenly jumps six inches to the left in front of you. You don't then spend hours and hours pondering that and worrying about it. and think You kind of, people seem to tend to end up going, I, I can't think of a way of dealing with that, so I'm just not going to, and kind of compartmentalise it into a, a, a point in their mind, just don't think about it again, until somebody like me comes along and kind of pokes that memory by saying, you know, this pub or whatever and it's somewhere near to where this happened to you and you think do you know what that's odd she's asking that and I had that thing happen there um I get that quite a lot you know that people are like well yeah it wasn't quite where you're saying about but it was nearby and I've I've never really thought about it as paranormal before but now you're making me wonder and some of those are the best correlations I've had where you know it's clearly the same flipping figure but they didn't know that because I didn't ask about the figure um so yeah just absolutely fascinating how that can happen and when those people tell you those stories and they you know they've kept them uh, uh secret because of you know their i guess well they could be ashamed they could be worried that it would interfere with their uh their professional life or whatever do they tend to be is there have you noticed the correlation are they things that um maybe have happened to them as a child and they've dismissed it or is it been do you get people who come to you as sort of what you would call like a proper professional adult who's you know got 2.4 kids going to work in the city every day wearing a suit and then one day there was this thing and they're just too scared to tell anybody and then you come along and it unlocks something and there's there's an emotional outpour and they just like i really needed to tell someone do you get those instances where you feel like you're counseling someone do you know i actually do 
how do I tackle this? I'm, you know, I'm scared. How do I deal with this? And that's something I always have to say to them, look, you know, I'm not, I don't claim to be um, anybody that's able to control this for you or give you advice about how to deal with it. Um, you know, here's some resources that you might want to go and think about. You know, you could think about contacting a, a medium if if that's something that you think might interest you or that, you know, you might want to do. Um, here's a couple of local paranormal groups you might want to have a word with. Um, but I can't, I'm not going to set myself up to try and help with something that I'm just not qualified to help with. Um, and sometimes people are obviously really relieved to get it off their chest. And sometimes people are obviously, it's something they talk about very, very frequently because it happened to them and they and they need to, to validate that in many ways. And, and like I say, in other people, things are constantly happening. So I've got some correspondents that will write to me and say, oh, and now this has happened. <laughs> mm, it's funny you say that because we've been talking about that on the podcast quite a lot because... Ben and I have had a few things weird happen over the, well, I guess since we started doing this, especially especially over the last year or so. And we're almost apologetic on the, on the podcast going, I know you think we're making this up, but they're only little small things. You know, like I was editing the podcast the other week and my son's TV turned itself on. Everyone was out and I thought they'd come back it was blaring out music just as I was editing a bit where we were talking about poltergeist and mischievous spirits and I you know we rec- you know it, it could be a rational thing you maybe left it on pause and it just turned off after a couple of hours but we do seem to have really small little things that happen to us a lot and it I can understand that pressure from somebody who's having that all the time going people will just think we're mad or they won't believe it. I guess we've got the excuse that people think, well, they're doing a paranormal podcast, they're having it up, which we're not. But I can see why it'd be difficult for people maybe to want to share those stories or feel they need to offload it. I I honestly can understand it. And I think the fact, I think when people are talking to me, when, when I'm interviewing them as a witness, I think the fact that I grew up with a poltergeist um, and that's what sparked off my interest in the paranormal um and you know anybody that's sort of you know listened to a previous podcast with yourselves or, or any of my other work that I've done will have heard me talk about that in the past you know what it was like growing up with a with a poltergeist and why that sparked off my interest in the, the paranormal but when you when you have things start to happen and I still can't remember who it was but somebody coined the phrase when you look at the paranormal it starts looking back at you and the more I do this, the more I think that's true. Um, now, whether it's that it's that something intelligent, sentient, whatever is physically looking back at you, or whether it's a case of you hone your own senses and you start to take more note of the weird little things that happen around us, I think is a moot point and ugly bait. Um, because I think either could be true, frank, you know, frankly. Because I think the more you delve into the odd, the paranormal the more you start to notice the little things that don't fit into the normal realm. Now, were those things always there and you just didn't notice them before? Or are they now happening more because you've paid attention? You'll never be able to quantify that because you can't measure those two states of being accurately now, can you? Because they've changed by the fact that your knowledge has changed. And it's a bit like, 
if you think about, um, say you want to buy a new car and you're thinking to yourself, mm, I've narrowed down all my choices. I think I'm quite fancying a red BMW. Over the next couple of weeks, everywhere you look, you'll see a damn red BMW, won't you? And that's not because the red BMWs have decided to haunt you to make you buy one. It's because your brain has attuned itself to red BMWs. So you're suddenly noticing them where they were there all along. And I suspect that that that's actually what's happening with the paranormal. It's not that it's necessarily a sentient or, you know, whatever that's that's consciously looking back. I think it I think that's more a sort of um uh esoteric, if you like, looking back at you, where what's actually happening is you're becoming more in tune with the world around you and noticing when things don't fit into our normal daily acceptance, if you like. You know, it's not normal for that fork to jump eight inches to the left. I'm gonna actually think about it. It's interesting you say that because we and it's interesting you mentioned cars because we talk about ants. <laughs> ben always describes it as ants like living in a Porsche. They don't know what a Porsche is, or a, or in this case a BMW. They've got no comprehension of it, and one day maybe they'll it'll drive somewhere and they'll get out and they'll be in a completely different realm, and they've got no comprehension of it. And we have talked about that a lot. It's you know maybe it's nothing paranormal in the sense we think it maybe we just live in a world where we have like the ant in the bmw we've got no comprehension of where we are and like you said when we think about it we'd start to notice these little things around us yeah i mean and even if you think about your own pet dog in a car you know you put it in a car and that moving window and then you stop and there's somewhere completely different and it's really exciting and certainly one of my dogs over the year obviously noticed the television and started to treat the television like it was a window on a real world and would watch whole programmes and became very attuned to which advert theme music involved an animal. You know, so if it was an advert that a dog was going to walk on, she'd be up and ready and waiting for that dog because she heard the theme music. Um, and she obviously started to treat the television as if it was a window on life of real things the other side of it like she would in the car um you know whereas my current dog barely ever notices the television at all he doesn't think of it in the same way at all and and it's kind of that same thing isn't it it's at which point do you lift your head up and go hang on a minute something different is happening over there and start to pay attention for it and whatever species you happen to be whether you're talking about the ant in the car or a dog in a car or us in our worlds are we just opening our minds to the to different possibilities? And is that where you really get into the quantum part of this? You know, that actually this isn't paranormal, it isn't supernatural, it isn't any of that. It's simply part of a greater universe that we haven't yet figured out the meaning to and haven't yet figured out the correlations of. Um, who knows? That's what fascinates me. Yeah and, yeah, and us. And I think it leads me on to think about something you said earlier as well about TV shows and we've talked about it on the podcast before, you know, this, these kind of huge narrative ghost stories with these massive backstories and sometimes you do come across those stories. We do. I'm not saying we're not, we, we don't. But I think what interests me about a lot of your work, Ruth, is 
it's those little things. Do you know what I mean? There's not this huge backstory or this huge narrative. Like like the policeman, you know, oh, I saw a vic- somebody dressed in this Victorian thing. In a way, those kind of stories, I think we said last time, you know, they, there's certain credibility to that, but it does also lend into that theory of not quite understanding the universe and just spotting little things rather than it having to have this huge backstory and narrative going on. Well, it's interesting you say that, actually, because I've suddenly... This last couple of weeks or so, I've got myself all twisted up over white ladies and white lady ghosts. Right. Just what are they? Um, because it's it's a really ubiquitous, in the UK anyway, um, and I believe in parts of America as well, the white lady ghost. And Japan, yeah. And Japan as well, yeah, actually, you're right. You know, they're, they're often, there's an element to the story of them being some sort of harbinger of doom, um, particularly in Japan, but even in the UK. But a lot of them get translated at the moment to um, a sort of vaguely hinted at timeline that points you roughly towards the Middle Ages, that some local land lord or, or you know landowner or gentry or whatever had a daughter who fell in love with the stable lad or the the army captain or somebody she shouldn't have done and you know either was an unrequited love or you know the evil father wouldn't let them get together and she ends up dying on her wedding night or eloping and dying on the wedding day or you know and it's always that kind of something about them not being allowed to be together or doomed because they did get together. Um, and she is now forever haunting in a wedding dress. And that's why she's a white lady. And that's why at the same time, we sort of attribute this kind of um, doom thing to her that, you know, she's trying to warn other people not to make the say she did or she's vengeful because of what happened to her or whatever. But I've started to wonder if there are actually much, much, much older stories than where they purport to come from, you know, the Middle Ages, and whether the Middle Ages is just where they got assigned, and even later even. Um, and it's on my to-do list, actually, is to look up when did white wedding dresses become a thing in the UK? Because I'm beginning to suspect that that post-dates most of these stories so this can't be a white wedding dress she's wearing because she's earlier than the instances of white wedding dresses if you actually trace the story all the way back. And if, you, if you're able to, and of course we're not, our written history only goes so far back. If you were able to, just how far back could you trace that entity? And it's got nothing to do with a lord or a wedding or a unrequited love or any of that nonsense that's that's probably been ascribed to it in later years but have we actually got something much older and much more elemental that we're talking about here well i remember last time you were on i was asking you why there are so many ghosts of victorian clothing and you said well how do you know what victorian clothing looks like and that was a really good point that did change the way i thought about things because um there is a trope you know all ghosts are sort of victorian children but that's not necessarily the case and and then when you start talking as you have been about um women in white dresses and the fact that they're ubiquitous in a number of cultures that's when you start thinking well are they 
you know, it's the nature of the phenomena. Is it that we're seeing a replay or a, a come coming back of a previously existing human, or is it something else that is either pretending to be that, or that is the way we see it because that's the only way we can perceive it? Or is it something else? And like genuinely, we've gone to the point, we did a whole episode about it, is like, are we living in a simulation? Because what are these things? You know, are they a fill-in for, you know, something else that should be there and the computer is just giving us that code because it doesn't know what else to give us? It's genuinely mysterious, right? Yeah, or is it, if not that, is it a case of because our brains can't compute what we are seeing, you know, that we assign. Uh, yes. You know, like paradelia. Yes, 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 yes. The fact that the human mind, uh, you know, for anybody who's listening to me rabbit on and is thinking, what on earth is she talking about now? Paradelia is where the human mind is absolutely conditioned that we will try to see human faces in any kind of random pattern. And it's part of the whole predator prey, recognising whether you're in danger, recognising whether you've got another human to run to thing. So it's it's sort of, you know, part of our DNA, practically, to, to try and make human faces out of shapes. Um, does our brain work in a similar way if these are some other kind of entity or some kind of time slip or some kind of slip where we're seeing through to another um, dimension or if it's another creature that is able to camouflage itself or something or if it is the ghost, does our mind simply put an interpretation on it that we can cope with? Yeah. Is that what we're actually seeing? So is that why we all see it as a white lady? Yeah. The nearest interpretation that our brains can give it. So when we try and articulate what we saw, our brain goes, call it a white lady. It, it's kind of the nearest analogy I've got to give you. I guess what you're talking about, it isn't because some people would go, well, yeah, but general paradoia is you look at a uh, – a tree and it looks like there's a gnarly old man in there if you kind of squint and that's the first thing your brain says but if there is something deeper if there is something that is so um foreign to our perception your brain is struggling to find something to return back to the central core of consciousness that it goes do you know what we'll just settle with a white lady I can't even understand what this is. It's not just, oh, there's a shape there that looks like a white lady. It's something much deeper and bigger, but we've just got no comprehension about what it is, so that's what we're going to call it. Yeah, I'm going yeah. to give you an image that you can cope with. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that's it, an image we can cope with. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Dig back into your own memory and make assumptions about what information your eye is feeding it for you to then interpret what your eye is seeing. And there's whole scientific papers on how that works, you know, how your eye takes in data and your ears and your touch and all, and all the rest of it, but most predominantly your eye. And your brain then has to interpret that for you to then put a meaning to what that data that's being processed is. And it does that by accessing your own internal memory banks. Um, and your memory banks obviously grow over the period of your lifetime and they they get filled up with all sorts of things and there's so much data that your memory you, you, your brain has to sort that data and put current stuff that i'm going to need quite a lot lot of and see every day 
and things that I'm not going to remember until something triggers them way back in because I haven't got enough computing space at the front to keep it all at front all the time. And is there something about how it does that recall that means it goes, I, I can't find a match for this? You know, does our brain begin to act like a computer at this point? I can't find a match in my database for this. So I'm going to throw out the closest, nearest match I can think of, um, you know, given the parameters that I'm looking at a vaguely humanoid shape that's vaguely white or who knows, who knows what it's looking at. Um, but it it does start to make you, you, honestly, you can send yourself down so many rabbit holes with this because the other thing that's been bothering me a lot lately with doing this latest book on road ghosts is why do so many road ghosts fling themselves in front of cars? Hmm. Why have I got so many modern tales of this happening and I've got the first-hand witness? This isn't an urban myth because, you know, for a long time I thought most of this was urban myth and what I would find was figures standing beside the road and the urban myth had grown up around them flinging themselves in front of cars because that's more exciting. But what I'm finding is that I've got an awful lot of first-hand accounts of things flinging themselves in front of our cars. Why? Hmm. How does that work? Why is that? Well, you, well, and I think that, you know, just taking it anecdotally, I feel like I know some of those stories. They kind of crop up on you know, your, your YouTube channels and um, other sorts of uh, ghost monsters, legends kind of stories. And I suppose you start to interpret them as um, reenactments of an actual event that happened. You know, the stone tape, the, it's a replay of something that happened. But you make a, a really good point, like to replay at the point where, it, in, where it, it, there is a perceived impact on a car, even though there isn't that requires a trigger that isn't just a dumb replay of something there is a consciousness there that is caught even if the replay is unconscious there is a consciousness triggering the replay right otherwise it wouldn't it wouldn't hit the car and that is absolutely perplexing actually i'd take it a step further than that is that if it was just a replay then I could imagine that all you need is a trigger. So you just need a certain temperature or a certain weather condition or a certain angle of light is the trigger. So you don't necessarily need a, a, a sentient trigger, if you like, um, and the replay will play. And, and, and therefore, a car passing at that right moment with that right trigger will see that replay. But the counts I get, it's not a replay. Because if it's a replay each car that it happened to would see exactly the same thing, wouldn't they? Yes. You know, so it'd be wearing the same clothes, look like the same thing, mm -hmm. fling itself in front of the car at exactly the same point on the road. They might be male, they might be female, they might be wearing this, they might be wearing that. The only thing they're doing in common is flinging themselves in front of the damn car. And then I start to think, what? Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't believe there were that many road accidents along that stretch where people died falling in front of a car or whatever that is now being replayed so that belies the whole replay theory so what have I got going on here where I you know there seem to be and not and not only just on one stretch of road but because you do when you do research like I do it 
um, trying to find correlations all up and down the country and pulling everything together and talking to dozens and dozens and dozens of people, you start to notice a pattern about, hang on a minute, this flinging themselves off the side of road things is a bit too samey. And yet it's not the same place. It's not the same entity. They're not wearing the same clothes. It's not a replay. So what is going on? Bothering me a lot just lately, I have to say. I wonder if it's an entity that's trying to tell them they've got an ant in the car. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's solved. (laughs) Simplest things, always the the right conclusion. Leave my ants alone. Get off. (laughs) So um, I'm beginning to lean towards boggarts. Oh. Well, that uh, that would indicate a trickster, right? Yeah. 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 We've come across cases where the only possible explanation is a trickster. The um, Sam the Sandown uh, clown, that, for, for us, that case, I don't know if you're familiar with that, Ruth, but that was... I've heard of it. I, w- I wouldn't class myself as familiar, but I've definitely heard of it, you know, keeps appearing sort of thing. Well, it's that and Jeff the Talking Mongoose, where those the entities are so bizarre in the way that they present themselves and they confound any kind of research, even contemporary research at the time. And you get people who are very well-versed in dealing with peculiar cases and yet they spend days down there and nothing comes out out of it sam the sandown clown you you don't get that but jeff the talking mongoose you do and the only way you can explain it is there is something messing with us there is something it's literally like it is taking the piss that is the only thing that you can draw a conclusion on yeah it thinks it's really funny what it's doing and and sometimes with how many of these ghosts flinging themselves in front of cars things i get i've ended up thinking is something thinking this is just a laugh to do it up and down the country and see how many people break their cars violently trying not to hit them when there's nothing there yeah well we we discussed that when we did the are we living in a virtual simulation we did cuz the, there's this idea that we could be living in a historical simulation and ben and i had the idea that maybe there's these entities visiting us but these are the teenagers who are just larking about (laughs) well that would fit with the 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 sense that you sometimes get when you research into some of these that hang on a minute something's having a bit of a lark here (laughs) yeah 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 well look let's let's talk about the um the current book because last time or perhaps the time before, it might have been the first time you were here, you teased us about the interdimensional sausage. And that was a teaser for the book. Um, can you tell us something from the new book, something that has um, is going to appear in print that has made you kind of go, well, that has completely perplexed me. That is that is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. Also, even not that, just something that stands out and God blimey, that's... That is number one. That's page number one. Do you know, I think for me, it really is that um, the white lady I've got in uh, now, where is she? This is why I got onto the subject of white ladies. Uh, Norwich. White Woman Lane in Norwich. Oh, wow. It's even named after her. Wow. Named after her. And... I, I wish I had the time 
or if anybody's listening to this is in Norwich and has the time, please, please, please go and find out for me. How long has White Woman Lane been called White Woman Lane? Because I think that's going to be a, a key, interesting bit of information if somebody's got the time to dig in and find that um, out. Because I care about, you know, it's it's a, a local urban myth, if you like, you know, tale, whatever. White Woman Lane has uh, a white woman haunting it, as you'd expect. Dig around a little bit, you'll easily find all sorts of versions of that tale from, um, you know, she's the daughter of a local squire, fell in love with the coachman. Um, he didn't want her. She ran after him, fell under the coach wheels, got killed. To uh, It was a coachman, but her dad separated them, wouldn't let her, so she killed herself. Um, other versions put it as an Elizabethan tale from the Elizabethan area killed herself on the verge of her wedding um that she's actually seen in her wedding gown with pretty herbs around her head various versions of this tale that are all basically from slightly different eras um and she you know some kind of sadly tragically killed bride that is the basis behind it for whatever reason and it seems quite likely that she's been seen for at least a couple of centuries because people mention an older tale where she was seen by two people in a pony and trap as a, a form of mist drifting across the road. And then you'll you'll easily find a tale of two girls who sought the mother when they were out bicycling. So that's likely to be, you know, sometimes from, say, 1920s onwards. It hasn't got a date, so it could be any time from 1920s onwards. Um. And that had, that had caught my interest. Um, wasn't actually expecting that anybody might have seen her. I was kind of thinking this is a bit more of an urban myth, although I did find somebody who had been there um, as a child and attended the primary school there, which is called the White Lady Primary School. I mean, fancy naming your primary school after... <laughs> <laughs> you know, some kind of possibly evil entity. That's nice, isn't it? Um, and he remembers, because, you know, he went there as a small child, that at that time, everybody said it was the ghost of some a woman who'd hung herself in a barn and, and there was nothing about her being a, a bride or anything. And he remembers as a child, so we're going back 40, 50 years, that his friend's mum always used to say she'd seen her. Something, you know, well, a couple of hundred years she's been around and she was seen maybe 50 years ago, perhaps, you know. And then I found somebody who saw her in the late 1990s in his garden. Not quite on White Woman Lane, but, you know, there's a housing estate all built up around it now, which is why I'm interested on how old the name of the lane is, because it's got to be at least a couple of hundred years old, surely, if that's, you know, we're getting stories that far back. And I've got a recent sighting of her which I'm not going to tell you too much about. You have to buy the book. <laughs> but, I mean, how fascinating that this could be an entity that's been around for all this time and has even got the road named after her. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Well, and and I I mean, obviously, I presume you looked into the name of the road, but you couldn't find an explanation. Well, everybody says that the, the road is named after the ghost. Wow. Whether that's true... 
I don't know. But that's anywhere you look at the moment, that's what comes back is that you get, oh, you know, it's it's even, you know, even the road is named after the ghost. Is the road named after the ghost or is the ghost, you know, coming into being or? Yeah, is it a tulpa because of the, because of the ghost? Yeah, because of the name. Yeah, yeah, I get you. I get you. It's one of those things that if somebody local to the area had the time and and just, I know it sounds like an excuse, but honest to God, when you, when you read one of my books, if you look at one of the entries that's, you know, because I tend to do them in entries, you know, per apparition, if you like, and each entry is, I don't know, maybe five or six paragraphs long as a, um, you know, rough guide. And it takes you three or four minutes to read that and you think, oh, that was interesting. What you don't see is that you're probably looking at eight or nine hours of my work mm. to produce that four paragraph. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely understand. You know, you've got hundreds and hundreds of hours of work to produce the book. Just don't have enough hours in my life <laughs> to delve down into one story <laughs> to the depth that you'd sometimes really love to have the time to do. And I, I often wish, I wish somebody would do that with them. Actually, there's one in this new book where somebody's done exactly that. That's just made me think there is one where somebody's done exactly that for me. And I've put their findings into the book. Um, that's about an airfield and a disappearing house. Um, I'm well, I'm I'm fascinated by disappearing houses. Well, look, before before you go, I do need to ask you about whether you've you've heard anything about this particular, uh, I guess, apparition. So we um we were very lucky to be joined by Misha Paris and her daughter. I was probably about five months ago and she uh, described something that happened in her house that I had never heard of before. And I've been itching to ask you about since, uh, since we heard about it. And I thought I'd save it for this. So she saw disembodied heads in her house, but proper full apparitions, but only the head. Have you ever come across that? I have. Right. I actually have, yes. Um, I'm trying to remember which book it's in. It's in either these Haunted Times 1 or 2, I think 1. Um, but it's one of those two, these Haunted Times, Volume 1 or 2. Um, and it was a chap working in North Wales, I'm wanting to say, I think it was. Um and it was a yeah, I'm sure it was Wales because it was a, it was a row of miners' cottages that were being restored to be part of a historical uh, museum setup or something like that. Can't quite remember without digging it out and having a look at it. But anyway, he was a carpenter, um, and his his job was to be putting um, some wooden stairs in as part of the restoration of this little row of cottages. So he was working alone in one of the cottages. There were other workmen about doing other jobs in, you know, what have you, but at this precise moment in time, he was alone in one of these cottages. He was upstairs having just put the wooden staircase in and was doing something with the banisters and was kneeling down, getting something out of his toolbox. When in the stairwell next to him, a head came up the stairs. Well, I can't remember now whether it was up the stairs or down the stairs, but anyway, a head, if you could imagine, sort of like was going up or down the stairs, which are where it was going, can't quite remember now. And he sort of saw it out the corner of his eye because he was kneeling down by the banister and assumed it was one of the other workmen. I think it was going down the stairs, actually, as I'm thinking about it. He assumed it was one of the other workmen and kind of turned to speak to them, say, what what, what have you come, what's the matter? Why are you going, you know, what do you want? Um, and all there was was this head 
bobbing down the stairs at the right height for if it was on the body and behaving like it was on top of a body, but there wasn't a body. So, yes, I have actually got one of those. The weird thing about you telling that story, actually, because when we uh, interviewed Misha and Monet, the two biggest things for them were the floating head, obviously, and tons of paranormal activity on their stairs. <laughs> so it's weird. <laughs> That's a weird coincidence. Wow. Well, I have heard somebody say that stairways are like a um, a kind of uh, thinning of the veil because of the nature of stairways. A portal. Yeah, it can be a thinning of reality. And so you, you do always get more, it's like crossroads. It's one of those, you know, like an ancient law of the land, if you like, that stairways, doorways and crossroads are areas where things are more likely to happen. So who knows? Maybe so. That's a door to a stair behind me. So, you know, keep your eye on it. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking at that now, really scared. (laughs) So uh, when is the new book out? (laughs) How long is a piece of string? Yeah, um, I'm really hoping to have it out by uh, autumn. At the latest, it would be by Christmas. Um, And it will all depend on how nice the weather is through summer, frankly. Um, (laughs) And whether I am a good girl and sit in writing and doing what I should be doing or go out and play on my motorbike because the sun's shining. (laughs) Um, So, yes, if you want to read the book, pray for a really wet summer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. And if people want to contribute to the book, which social media should they go to? I've made life really easy for everybody. So... If you Google Ruth Roper Wild, it'll bring up um, my Facebook page, my Twitter page, or my email address is now ruthroperwild at gmail.com. Ah, brilliant. Nice and easy for anybody who wants to write to me to use. It's just my name at gmail.com. No full stops, no anything, just ruthroperwild at gmail.com. Genuinely, for anyone who hasn't come across Ruth before, if you want a really well-researched ghost book, it isn't just like oh here's a tale of this here's a tale of that it is properly collaborated the stories come from people who have seen them they are eyewitness stories and that makes them so much more powerful and i think what comes across in the book you because you are self-published i think that makes it even more credible because you're doing this not just as a, a commercial exercise. You're doing this as a labour of love and something that you really feel needs to be done. And that really comes across in the books. It really shines through. I'm glad it does because that's, you know, that's my kind of raison d'etre about doing them. Um, you know, I'll never become a millionaire doing it this way, um, sadly, as my husband would tell you. <laughs> but, you know... I'm doing what I think needs to be done because if somebody doesn't collate this data and that's what I'm doing is correlating and collating data and get it down for posterity, then how are we ever going to find the answer to this? You know, we need that information. And and that comes from somebody who having, you know, grown up with a poltergeist and wanted to be able to read what the heck am I experiencing? to read about endlessly regurgitated the same story. And please out there, if anybody else asks me to do Bluebell Hill, 
I will scream. I'm not doing the Bluebell Hill ghost, okay? It's never happening. To endlessly regurgitate this same old story over and over again. No. What we need is what's really happening, you know? Are these paranormal occurrences in these places? And if not, where are they happening? Yeah. And that's, that's what I do. That's my passion. Well, that absolutely intersects with the whole reason why we do this podcast we say it's the podcast for the believers the doubters and everyone in between and that is because all we're interested in is what is the truth of these things because like you i suspect it is much stranger than any of us can even imagine and that is what keeps us coming back thank you for being a friend of the show and thank you for joining us. It's always a massive pleasure. This won't be the last time we speak to you. And I'm so grateful for you giving up the time. And um, for our listeners, we're recording this just before Easter because we're all going to go away for a bit and um, lie in a darkened room. And in my case, go down to Devon and eat an awful lot of crab. But um, uh, I'm super grateful for you to come on. So lovely to see you again. Thank you. Guys, I, I will come on every time my, you ask me because I just love having these chats. They are my passion. So thank you for having me. Great time and have a great Easter. the quantum mechanics